Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I'm your host, Tom Richardson, and we will be bringing you all of the latest news, insight, and interviews with leaders and subject matter experts from the world of RegTech. Today, we're going to be joined by Mr. Dean Curtis, aka the best networked guy in RegTech. I've had the pleasure of knowing Dean for close to 15 years now. And he's um, someone that I've always admired for a number of reasons, but in particular, his focus on personal and professional development um, certainly given me a lot to think about over the years. And uh, well, as usual, I don't want to give the game away. So without further ado, I'll hand you over to Dean right now and he can tell us where his journey into RegTech began. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure it's something I set out to do intentionally in all honesty. So, <laughs> uh, um, I um, I have a background in sport, and when I finished playing sport, I um, I then became a broker in the city. And bizarrely, the way the role was affected by compliance just had a significant impact on the lives of myself and, and my colleagues. I began at Rothschilds, and then I went to HSBC Investment Management. And in that time, compliance was just really taking hold. And yeah. Um, you would get a regular visit from the compliance officer every week about the weightings in your portfolio and much to the frustration of the fund managers at the time who advertised this very kind of bespoke service. And that's when, when you know, compliance really started to have an impact on, on, um, on, on how we conducted business. I then went back into sport for a little while and went back to Investec Bank and during my time there they received a reasonably significant fine at the time, minimal by today's standards, um, from the, um, the FSA I believe it was at the time um, in their private client stockbroking business Car Shepherd Crossway and, um, and that led them to have a review of the business. And during that time, I, I got approached by a headhunter and said, look, there's this tech startup down in Putney. They're doing some really great things and um, it's compliance and it's online and everything was just starting to come online at the time. And essentially, as a, as a salesperson at the time, I thought there's opportunity there. Yeah. So I thought I'm going to go down and, and see what it's all about. And that business was, um, was Complinet, run by Chris Pilling. And I went down there and you walk into different businesses and, and some businesses can be a bit like a stagnant pond and this was a fast flowing river. And although it was kind of two and a half hours from where I live, um, I thought I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna give this a go. So I moved out of giving investment advice into, yeah. into kind of data and technology at the time. And that was back in 2004. Um, and, and pretty much straight away at the time the business was going from a very subscription message board type product to more sophisticated workflow solutions like um, KYC and policy manager and, and those sorts of things. And so I, so I was there for a while and, and then I, I followed a, um, my sales director to FTSE, the index company. Yep. And then from there, I, I went back into regulation in the true sense and was the first non-US employee of Volta's Kluwer Financial Services where we grew a regulatory business globally. Um, and then uh, I spell at Thomson Reuters, now uh, Refinitiv, and um, a little bit of uh, time in, in private equity yep. with another startup. And, and um, for the last six years, I've been in Relics Group and began the international expansion of 
the risk solutions business at LexisNexis, and um, and now I'm I'm working in rebusiness information. So I guess uh, regulation was was where I was destined to. Yeah. Be. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly seems like it's been good good for you. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an industry that, that's not only got huge potential because the growth of, of, of the market is, is has just been phenomenal, but it also has a very good social impact on yes. on the world, and um, that's important, right? So you end up seeing quite a lot of quality talent that has strong ethical way of doing business that actually wants and has an emotional connection to the subject matter rather than just in it to earn money for a sale or commission or whatever it is and i think that that emotional connection is key you know when you're when you're identifying terrorists or you're stopping fraud or money laundering and 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 making the markets more safe and, and efficient i think that that has a strong ethical reason yeah well, actually, that's something that I've, I would associate with you and, in fact, recently the, the businesses that you've been running is that that's a message that you're not afraid to um, put out there, which I sometimes think is maybe not done enough because it is uh, this is a force for good, right? Some of the technologies and the, um, and the solutions and the things that people are doing are contributing towards fighting bad guys at the end of the day. Absolutely. And, and that's important, I think. Um, for me personally, what you do is important, but how you do it is probably more important, particularly in the longer term. In, in all my different kind of phases of my career, I think you see that the people that have done things right end up being right for longer. Um, and so it's important to me how, you know, how we do business culturally as an organisation. I'm fortunate now to work in an organisation that thinks ahead and for the longer term which allows you to be able to make the right decisions rather than just hit a target for the month or the quarter yeah and um and, and i don't think anybody wants to work in that environment and it's particularly important coming from a sports background you know in sport there's a, a fundamental saying performance is the thing you do to get the results you want and in business everyone is focused on the outcome and the result and not necessarily on the performance piece and, and it's totally the opposite in sport. So I, I try and take that approach in business and I'm fortunate enough to work for people that allow me to do that. And and that creates, I, I believe, a culture of bringing the, you know, getting the right or attracting the right talent that want to do things in the right way. Very good. Okay, so you've worked at a number of different companies in this space over that fairly lengthy period of time over the course of 15 years yeah. um, and I know that you know a lot of people who are the individuals you think of when you reflect on that 15 years that have kind of had the biggest impact on you and um, your career would you say wow that is a that is a really tough question and I'm fortunate enough to have been blessed to have worked with many many good people um, across my career and I, and I truly stand on some shoulders and, and punch above my weight there um, and you can also learn just as much off the bad ones as the good ones but fortunately I, I think one of my one of my key sayings I stand by is you become the people you touch so you know choose who you spend your time with very wisely and I try to do that and, and luckily this industry attracts you know a lot of top talent in a, in a you know multitude of disciplines um, going back very early on, I had a um, 
I had a boss at HSBC Investment Management, uh, a chap called Rod Juniper, and his big thing was never expect anybody to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. And, and there, in those days, we used to bind client valuations and other things at quarter end, and he would be out there with us ordering pizza. We'd work till midnight, and just a truly, you know, lead by example boss, and and, and hugely ethical, and and something that I've I've tried to, you know, hold myself to along the way. In terms of um, compliance, there's there's been absolutely, you know, there's many, right? Um, Chris Pilling and what he created at Complement as arguably the first UK reg tech was, was fantastic. Um, the bringing together the technology expertise he had with, with Alex Viles' um, background as the compliance officer at, at Bearings yeah. was hugely, you know, impactful and, and defined the way the industry works. Um, st still doing, uh, having an influence now, right? As an investor and advisor to a lot of these businesses. Absolutely, and he's got so much to offer that, that you know, quite rightly so. And, and and if I go back to that that team, and I think, could we have made the business bigger and better given at the time we didn't have any competition? Yes, we should. So I don't think we fulfilled commercially what we should have done as a business, in in all honesty. Um, but. But you know, it was the first, and, and 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 defined some, you know, to a large degree, some of the way for the future. And we partner with big businesses like WorldCheck and, and Dow Jones and others that, that really pave the way. And obviously, there's a lot of businesses trying to capitalise on that now. And then in in um, in my current role, well, first of all, at, at Thomson Reuters, there was there was um, some good people there. My boss Neil Sternthal, um, who was based in New York. You know, his professionalism and really kind of high impact engagement with key large accounts that were huge sums of money um, and professionalism there was it was a great discipline and, I, and I'm, I'm at the moment I'm fortunate enough probably to work to, for one of the best executives I've or two best executives I've ever seen in, in Mark Kelsey at, at um, Reed Business Analytics Mark takes a great long-term view, backs his talent, and, and what he's done there is fundamentally amazing in, in two businesses. He runs the Risk Solutions business and, uh, and Read Business Information. Risk Solutions, he took international from being US only in a period of five years, and I, I helped him do that. Read Business Information was a publishing house with 33 businesses, 300-odd print publications, I think. They've now got three or four print publications and seven focused businesses. And the performance of that business is phenomenal. And the two businesses together make up kind of 55% of the growth of a FTSE 15 company. So, you know, it, it's great. And, and I, I mentioned earlier his, um, his long-term view and giving you the, the freedom to make the right long-term decisions is, is, a, is a privilege in the corporate world when everyone wants money now. Right, and and I, yep. I I love that long term approach, and then I also work with someone who I know you've worked for in, in the past, Hugh Jones, Mr. Hugh Jones, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Hugh Jones, who's who's just a master at go to market, yeah, and and um, has a very defined approach. He's he's helped many successful people begin and and develop their career in sales, yeah. Um, uh, and I've only just, although I've known him for many years, only just start re started recently working with him for him in the last in the last six months. But um, you can see how that approach creates value, not just in people, but in the market itself. Yeah, no, he's definitely got an eye for talent. Um, you can look at some of the people that he's employed and, and works with now. Not not least yourself, Dean. <laughs> um, very good. So so along the way, 
having worked in a few of these businesses and you know some have been more successful than others as, as is uh, always the way uh, and also the view that you have of the market from uh, a large player where you've been involved in mergers and acquisitions and similar what lessons do you feel like you've learned that some of the people listening to this might be interested in in terms of that commercial piece and the go-to-market bit that I know you're so strong on yeah so it is all about go-to-market and I know some people might find that hard to swallow and it's, it's hard internally when I talk about it because people spend a lot of blood sweat tears on products and ideas and, and various things but very few products sell themselves and that sounds hugely tech but there's a thousand odd reg tech companies in you know in existence today yep. they're all great ideas very few of them will succeed and the ones that will will get the go-to-market right you know i've seen in many industries where not necessarily the best product absolutely you know doesn't necessarily win the day how you deliver it to market for me is absolutely two-thirds of the value and I, and I can go back even in this market directly and you look at kyc information providers you know the, the best products and the, the ones with the best taxonomized quality broad coverage content don't often win yep. you know it, it is how you present it and connect with the market and and it's a it's a lesson for everyone and you know I see so it's, it's frustrating because I see so many reg tech businesses we look at to acquire over the years where great owners founders excellent ideas excellent capability in tech and people are holding on and holding on a lot of funding and and they just haven't got the the right mixture in in delivering that to market and it, and that's what it's all about right nothing happens until someone sells something yeah are, are there common themes for for that you've observed that are for why they're not successful you know more specific than than that they're not um yeah i i guess for me it's 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 making it simple so that the saying i would use is it's simple but it's not easy yeah. Otherwise, everybody would do it. So, so really defining what your business stands for and who you're after, because the, you know, you just want revenue, right? So you try and be all things to all people. And and, I, and a brilliant example of that. I don't know if you remember the business Datanomic. I do. Yes. So yes. ended up being bought by Oracle. Well, Datanomic were, was technology out of Cambridge, and um, were in administration was in administration for a while. Yeah. And they got a couple of uh, great salespeople in, a, a good colleague of mine, Don Marsh and, and Simon Pearson. And um, at the time, that was a data quality technology. And that, yep. that had such a broad reaching multitude of purposes. A, you can't be focusing your resource on where to sell it when you're trying to be that broad. But also, the market doesn't necessarily understand what you stand for as a small business. So you've, yep. I think you've got to start somewhere. So those guys came in and focused it specifically on AML and KYC. And, and the business grew very, very quickly in a couple of years out of administration and got sold, right? And that was purely how it defined itself in the market. And unfortunately, I see so many businesses where, where they've got, they're sitting on an absolute gold mine, yes. in my opinion, and they just don't know how to commercialize it. And it's almost, you know, and I speak to them about assistance, partnership, acquisition, whatever it is, I'm holding on, I'm holding on for my check. And you know that you're going to go back in five years and the chances are they're going to have missed a great opportunity. And it's just frustrating. So I think that, that, that you know, that's why this market's quite networked because the people people who know how to commercialize these businesses pretty much know each other. Yeah. And I'm sure you can relate to that because <laughs> you, know, you know all of them. <laughs> um, so 
so if I am a, what lessons could you give if there's a young uh, person out there now either entering sales, because I know that, that was your background to begin yeah. with too, um, or taking on their first leadership position, yeah. I think it'd be really interesting to get your thoughts on um, on some of the lessons you've learned there or the advice that you would have for those. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, funny enough, I um, I was talking to our sales team about you know starting out in sales and the and the things that um, you need and and I gave them four things. The first one is is um, well, I won't tell you what it is. I I, I told them a story. It was <laughs> it was uh, in in the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, two shoe salesmen from Manchester went to Africa to explore the opportunity there. And the first one sent a telegram home and basically said, it's no good here, they don't wear shoes. Second one sent a telegram home, we've got to ramp up production, there's huge opportunity, they haven't got shoes yet. <laughs> so lesson number one in any salesperson or any business you work for, life is short and you've got to enjoy the people you're working with and what you're doing and if you don't, you should change. And you have to believe in what you're doing. And in, in, a, in, a, in a commercial environment where you meet customers, customers see that more than any knowledge or any skill set if, if your eyes are shiny and you truly believe in the company you represent it makes the biggest difference in the world so the first one's passion and belief the second one i think in any high performer that always look for is curiosity um, particularly in sales the ability to understand and change your views um, the third is courage and the ability to fail and I think that particularly from sport and, and all successful people have had a very large degree of failure in their life. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people try and protect themselves from failure, but failure teaches you many lessons that examinations can't. Yes, agreed. And you will never ever achieve your potential if you're, if, you, if, you, if you're in your comfort zone. So make a lot of mistakes and particularly in sales, you turn up this lead is the last lead you're ever gonna get. This meeting is the last meeting. I need to make the most of this opportunity. In sales, it's more inherent than anywhere. anywhere. And as a result of that, you, you act with kid gloves, you go into your comfort zone, you probably turn up, you ask the same few questions, you show them a few slides of a PowerPoint and jump into a demo or whatever it is. And, and the same thing just happens and you, you don't test yourself. So, you know, the, allowing yourself the ability to fail is important. And the fourth one is very, very basic, but it's hard work, right? Hard work absolutely works in sales. Yeah. And people, oh, I'm gonna work smart. Life in general. In life in general, totally. And, you know, I, I see some young salespeople now who, th who are brilliant in terms of their, their skill set, and they walk into the office at a couple of minutes to nine and I've never done that in my career, right? And to be honest, at nine o'clock, most of the key decision makers are, I don't answer my phone between nine and six, mm -hmm. or all my emails. And uh, you're not gonna- for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you, you're, never, you're never gonna get hold of the people that you wanna get hold of. Yeah. And, and so, you know, passion and belief, curiosity, courage, hard work are the, are the four key things of any performer, but particularly in sales, in my view. And then just surround yourself with good people that inspire you, give you energy, you can learn from. And that's the same in any facet of your life, right? You, yeah. if, if you, you, know, you fall into goods and good and bad crowds at school, that the people you work with are fundamentally key. And that, there's nothing better than working in a really great performing team. Yeah. 
you, you, you've been there. It's, it's, it's almost like looking around the dressing room and just knowing you're going to win. <laughs> and and it, honestly, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. So, you know, from a sales perspective, I would say that from a leadership perspective, it's really tough, right? I, I am fortunate enough to lead a lot of leaders and have been. Um, and I guess the transition from being good at your job to managing people is a tough one mm -hmm. because you feel that you can do better yourself. You know, you, again, you want a, a level of control and you think you know what works, but what might work for somebody else could be different. And the, the ability to kind of let go and create a framework for people to succeed and fail mm -hmm. is often quite tough. And uh, so the phrase I would use there is, is, is be the leader you always wanted yourself. Someone that gives autonomy that creates the right playing conditions and fights your corner to make your job as easy as possible within the parameters and allows you to succeed where you've got support and knowledge where you need it. Um, it is just being the leader you always wanted. Very good. I, how, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here. The, um, Some like you. The traits, <laughs> <laughs> the characteristics that you've talked about, or in some ways the values that you've talked to there, how do you try and identify those things when you're interviewing people for your team? Yes, good one. Um, passion is the ability for them to want the job, right? You know, so you know whether you want somebody to want the job really badly. I genuinely, generally always prefer when interviews aren't all done on the same day, quite often. You know, recruiters would want the process to be done quick, the candidate might go, you know, I think when you can draw it out, it is actually more positive. And, and I think that often if someone goes into an organization and meets two or three people for the first time, they often prepare in detail and they're ready for the interview. And then they get a view of what the job's like. And if you get them back in, it's a great way of checking their desire in terms of how they followed up, what additional questions, how much have they thought about the opportunity, how much in their mind are they already working for your company? So I'm a big believer in having face-to-face -face meetings on more than one day because quite often you can yeah. eke out the people that don't have that desire. Well, funnily enough, although recruiters don't like to say it, actually the data supports what you're talking about there. The more people they can meet and over uh, a longer period of time, generally the better the decisions, uh, hiring decisions get made. Right. Uh, but of course, that can have some issues when it comes to actually getting people on board and not losing them to a competition and that sort of thing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's a balance. <laughs> There's a balance. Yeah, the, the curiosity thing is a big one and, and I try and um, I try and do it by very informal discussion. I don't believe in formal interviews because I think if you can get people's barriers down, you can work out what they're really like. And it's important because it has to be right for them and it has to be right for you if you're going to invest in someone and, and they're going to kind of you know give you everything that they they have so i would i would say um you know being fairly informal has some benefits but also the questions that they ask of you because the curiosity piece is key and you yeah. often get people that are, they're going to ask me if i got any questions i'm going to write two at the top of my pad and they're going to be the same questions that i would have asked a week ago that to me is a bit disingenuous I, 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 a sales director of mine you you know him um, ha has a question where he asks people what they watch on TV, just randomly. And, and it's his way of beginning to test for curiosity. And at one point in the interview, I will always ask a question on a question on a question. So three questions on the same thing, just to test the substance. 
Um, very good. A little yeah. tidbit there for anyone who's going to be interviewing with Dean <laughs> in the yeah, future. I've just given it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I don't interview many people anymore, but that's that's typically how I um, that, that's typically how I would approach trying to test those behaviours. I have worked before on um, different kind of psychological tests as well. We did it at Volta's Kluwer mm. um, purely because a salesperson should be good at selling themselves right yes they know their product they've lived in their product for however many years and so creating a way of of exploring and testing what they're saying i think is pretty key i think salespeople are the hardest people to interview correctly yeah the other thing honestly and you're going to love me saying this but it's absolutely true referenceability yeah so i think there is a massive value of using recruiters that have worked and are very well networked in the market because referenceability around people, particularly salespeople that can sell themselves to you in a series of four or five meetings, but people that have worked for them and know exactly how they act day to day is probably the biggest test of the lot and hugely worth the value when you're looking at investing in people for the longer term. Do you, in terms of referencing, do you have a, a process that you go through for referencing or is it more informal? It varies. I prefer the informal referencing rather than the the formal because if, you know if someone asks me for a reference from a company perspective, I'm obliged to give a company standard reference. Whereas if if I can get a personal reference from somebody or somebody who knows somebody, it means a lot. Which is exactly why TripAdvisor and LinkedIn works. When someone sends you a LinkedIn invite, the first thing you look at is who do they know who I know. Yep. And are those people credible? And how do I rate those people? Because it gives me an indication of the of the person that's trying to connect with me. And so referenceability is, is huge, I think. Very good. So we, um, we've got to delve into your, uh, your understanding and thoughts on selling methodology, okay. if, if we may. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if, you, if you want to just sort of share with us your thoughts on this. Absolutely. So I think the industry and selling itself or buying has changed beyond belief over the last eight years. Uh, so most publishing, pre previous classed publishing businesses, um, the big ones, Baltus Kluwer, Thomson Reuters, Relex, Reed, you know, um, Euromoney, all of those businesses were publishers and they made their money out of books and print and PDFs and, and now as, as these businesses move more towards workflow and delivering information at critical points and adding value to customers and, and, and decision-making tools. And, and at Relex, I, I believe they've done a brilliant job of that. Um, it requires a different sales approach. Yeah. You, know, you used to be able to run a, run a publishing business off of a, off of a spreadsheet, really. And, and now that's not the case. It's all about how you present yourself and differentiate in the market. And the skills, honestly, do not exist in the market. And, and just, just put, put it up on there. So I accept the idea that um, 10, 15 years ago, someone could be selling data and uh, mainly talking about what the features and benefits, does it do precisely, does it tick this box that, yeah. you're, uh, that you need by yeah. law? Yeah. Um, but the idea of solution selling, value-based selling, yeah. um, was one that, that we were really pushing back then, two de yeah, decade and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. So are you saying that, um, are you talking about something different there? Well, I'm saying, I'm saying it existed, but less frequently, and it had less of an impact than it does now. And I think value-based selling and solution selling are different, right. is my own personal view. But you, know, you go back um, a number of years ago, and you look at the big 
companies, if, if I look at somebody's resume or CV and they've got Xerox, they've got IBM, they've got Pitney Bowes, at 15, 20 years ago and they had a tenure there, you know often they're great salespeople because it was a foundation of quality sales methodology. But sales has changed and, and so value-based selling has had a place, always had a place and the people that sell value always do the best, right? Truly delivering and measuring outcomes for customers. And you know, just the very nature of what value is. Value is customer benefit minus cost in the eyes of the customer. First of all, you're customer centric. It sounds basic, but not many organizations are like that as they push product. Um, so, so value selling has always had its place, but it has more of an impact now, my belief is. Solution selling has changed, and, and truly, I, I read an article way back when in the Harvard, um, Harvard Business Review, solution selling is dead. Years ago, you used to, as a salesperson, be able to walk into somebody's office, ask some few questions that uncovered a problem that they didn't think they had when you walked in their office. And then you had a bag of goods that, lo and behold, you had the answer to the question. And, and you know, you, you could sell like that, and many people did. Now, that's not the case. People are busy. Their budgets are stretched. They have, you know, they, they're doing more with less. They don't have capacity more often than not to even look at this, particularly in compliance and regulation. They're hugely under pressure. So you have to be able to work with them and solve their problems to their agenda. You can't go in and create the agenda anymore. Right, systems aren't going to change because you're a great salesperson and you took them to the cricket. You know that 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 that's done. And and um, a friend of mine, a chap called Brent Adamson, wrote a book called The Challenger Sale, yeah. where at, at CEB uh, at the time, corporate executive board, they 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 surveyed thousands of companies on how they purchased. And now, because and and, and the example I always use is is a, buying a car. 15 years ago, I went to buy a car with my fiance. I went in, I wanted a two-seater sports car. The, the, the salesperson, um, he or she could have had free reign with me, convinced me that we're getting married, having children, buying a dog, and I could have driven out in an estate car. Now, because of the internet, people not only know they've got a problem, they have a vision and they know how to solve that problem. Yeah. And, and as a result of that, you go and buy a car and you've done your research. You know the model you want, you know the color, you know the spec. And the only thing that changes in that, for that salesperson to work with is price, right? And, and so the only way you can change that is to teach, right? Is to teach the customer or a prospect a better way. So I, I genuinely don't believe that good salespeople can sell anything anymore. Right? I, I believe you need to have a level of subject matter to add value to the people that you're engaging with. Yep. So I don't believe the scale skills are transferable, but you need more than that to be successful. When you say scale skills, what do you mean? Sorry, just it, Like the value-based sales methodology, right. how you question. And a lot of people say they value sell, but I, even now I witness salespeople, when they hear someone, oh, you know, how much is this or what's this opportunity, the bell rings above their head and they stop because it's a transaction, right? Oh, you want this, this report or this content? You know, true value-based selling is really, what do you want that for? What are you going to do with it? You're gonna put it in what system with what data? What, what, what are you doing there? What is the outcome that produces? Oh, really? So it, 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 you know, you, you, it, it impacts your supply chain and you're able to predict supply chain. What does that save you? Well, it's about $3 million. Yeah. 
you know, then all of a sudden that's value-based selling, right? Because you're measuring the outcome and, and pricing essentially against the value that you're delivering the customer. Very few salespeople even now understand the value they deliver to customers. There's a lot of salespeople in the, in the regulatory world that offer brilliant assistance and something that a lot of people in the industry need and yet they don't view it like that. How, what you're saying, how does what you're saying affect building these teams then? Because if you're only looking to get people that can add the sort of value that you're talking about, you need someone who already works in the space, already has a knowledge. How does one develop um, talent in that situation? Because if someone's not feeding the funnel, then, yeah. then you get what we actually both know does exist, which is price inflation for those finite number of people who really know their onions. Yeah, and that's what's happened in this market, right? So at the top end, if you're looking at key accounts and people that are gonna really blaze a trail, you, you're, you're, there's, a, there's a limited pool of people, in my view, that can do that. In terms of developing talent, you have to rely on organisations that are prepared to do that. Acuity had a great model for years. You, you know, you yep. were part of that for a while, right? Yeah. Um, and, and we do the same across re business information at the moment, where you're hiring for capability, the things I mentioned, passion, desire, yep. curiosity, and, and you're interviewing on that, irrespective of experience, to get the right level of person into the organisation. And then you have to really create a strong sales enablement process and onboarding process to begin to educate those people and ensure that you have the subject matter around them and the sharing of knowledge for, for, for that to work. But the other part of that is how you, how you set your sales organisation up. Because quite often people say, you know, you, you've got the whole of Singapore as an example, right? Now, you know, that could be banks, it could be MSBs, it could be fund managers, it could be corporates, it could be, you know, to try and learn use cases across, it, it's right. just too much. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the kind of reg tech startups I mentioned before around defining what you stand for, for me, there's two parts to selling really. It's Put yourself in the place of most potential. Where can you win the best? And when you're there, what are you doing and saying? And, and developing the talent is working on the what are you doing and saying to get them successful, to keep and feed the hunger and desire and the passion because it, it's self-fulfilling, right? If, yeah. if someone's in a market and they're finding it difficult and not selling, they start to, their, their sparkle goes and, and then, and then you know, you've got a big job ahead of you. Ladies and gentlemen, full disclosure, that is the end of the original interview with Dean Curtis. Um, the reason being, there was a slight technical failure, which was yeah, actually entirely my fault. And um, I got in touch with Dean with a view to re-recording the last 10 minutes of the interview. Uh, and then COVID-19 struck. Uh, and so the world has changed quite dramatically in the meantime. And actually, I was quite keen to get Dean's views on how that's going to impact the market and how we sell. Well, I guess I guess the first thing that's that's difficult to fathom in a sales world where we're all driven by numbers, an environment like we see now, which is truly unprecedented, and, and one of the, if you like, more exciting things about it is nobody's got the playbook. Nobody in the world has ever gone through anything like this before, right? Um, and, and what history does tell us about similar events in the business world is turbulent environments often increase the distance between the winners and losers in competitive markets. Um, so those biggest shifts occur in moments of uncertainty, especially downturns. And so what you start to see is the, is the good thrive and the weaker drop away. And that's true both for businesses and indeed, um, and indeed individual salespeople because the success is relative. 
So I guess the first thing to point out really is that um, the definition for success for most individuals and organizations has changed. And as salespeople, it's worth working out what that new definition is, because there's nothing worse than going for a target, a goal or objective that's so far out of the way, or in some cases, easily, easily achievable, because um, the, either the satisfaction or the desire to exceed that falls, falls apart um, due to the realism of the, of the goal. So what we've seen at the beginning of a calendar year almost is, is the definition, definition of success change. And I think both organisations and individuals have to get their head around what the new definition of success looks like. And in some cases, that's actually um, not very well known compared to a, a reasonably certain world we lived in before of 10 years of, of economic upturn. Um, but there are, are true sales characteristics, and we discussed some earlier in the podcast that, that stand true from that, right? The passion of believing and the curiosity, but also something that everybody has, you know, resilience. Because, um, you know, for those of you, you know, that believe, um, you know, no explanation is necessary. And for those that don't, none will suffice. And we spoke about the, you know, the kind of African shoe salesman. And, and in this type of environment, that really is the pinnacle of, of the attitude that you want as a commercial person in the market, I think. So individually, I would say that. What, what are we seeing change? Um, lots, clearly. Um, I think now is a really good time to get hold of very senior people, right? Um, calendars and diaries and phones are probably more accessible than they've been for a long, long period of time. Um, and that's important. And, and I do believe that, you know, the, the, the best are even more differentiated in this environment, because when you can have conversations with senior customers and they learn something from you and they get something from that, they are more willing to engage and value the relationship and appreciate the value that you and your organization deliver to help them get to their objectives, which, by the way, have also changed pretty significantly, I would guess. And then it also means a, a significant change in the world of how we sell, particularly digitally. And we, uh, as human beings, often have a positive bias, um, but it looks like the environment and, you know, sitting in client offices and traveling around the world and the conferences are not going to be around for a little while. And therefore, how we sell changes and digital selling in particular was already becoming popular and and a differentiator and we see that a period of crisis has absolutely accelerated that and there are a few kind of digital selling schemes and ways in the market that that um you know you can kind of use and lean on but the nature of of meeting someone now even in in our january world if you want to put it like that was different someone had already formed an opinion of you because they're about to meet for the first time and they Google you and they look at your LinkedIn profile and they've already got a picture of Tom or Dean or whoever it is before we've even had that interaction. And before we used to walk into a room or a coffee shop and you size someone up, what they're wearing, how they're sitting. And all of a sudden you start to form an opinion and that opinion is formed digitally, which is pretty amazing really. And so when you look at things like your LinkedIn profile, what you share, the content you share, and how you are is a, is a big differentiator. 
Um, we use a, an ex-colleague of mine a, 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 um, in a couple of roles, actually, a chap called Dan Swift at Empire Selling. He has a pretty strong methodology around, uh, who's also worked in the reg tech world and stays up to date. His business does a really nice job in this space. Um, and unfortunately, um, in, in re-business information, we, were, we did a program of work last year on this, which has served us in, in good stead in this environment. How does that work when you're selling to the enterprise? So if you're an enterprise salesperson looking to initiate and uh, develop and ultimately close uh, business over the next 12, 18 months, what what does digital selling look like to that individual? Yeah, it's... um... That part of it is a challenge because you've got the dynamics of multiple stakeholders and a a detailed analysis of workflow plus the ability to build relationships and trust so that an organization um, is is willing to to go forward with you. And I think the trust is is a very basic thing, but hugely important. Um, And you know, what, what a lot of people don't forget is selling changed anyway. And, and we mentioned Challenger and leading with insight and teaching and the car analogy. Um, I guess our customers also have a problem with the amount of insight and information that's available in the market in this world. And, and I think it's something like 70% of all opportunities aren't lost to the competition. They're lost to no decision where um, the organization or the buyers or buyer feels overwhelmed and therefore the project becomes too complex where they don't actually do anything. So one of the big things is to clearly immobilize somebody to buy rather than sell to them. And in, in that kind of more complex sale in this environment, it, for me, it's about simplicity. You know, clearly you've got to understand workflows and, and really address the, the stakeholder challenges, but there's some strong statistics to say that you shouldn't necessarily adapt your message too much for the personas in each organization because one of the things you have to obtain is a level of consensus across those stakeholders in 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 the customer so um it can seem to be really you know hugely complex because it's remote um but we it doesn't necessarily need to be like that if you stick to the simplicity and for me the best people in those really complex uh, workflow environments are, are people that a understand the, the discipline or the subject matter but also are able to simplify it for customers and their workflow to to really make something happen and, and I actually think that that offers an opportunity that simplicity in a digital and remote world for that to happen clearly it gets a little bit more complex the further down the line you get with things like proof of concept and implementation and I think that's pretty specific based on the technology and what's needed. Um, Would it bias buyers towards uh, more established players versus newcomer, new entrants into the market or vice versa? Yeah, my own view, yes. You know, I think it, one of the things that this environment will do, I mean, the, the, the reg tech world has got a little bit out of hand, in my opinion. Um, if you look at the number of providers in the market, I forget, you know, is over 1,200 providers, I think was the last stat I saw probably 18 months ago, of which over 500 of them play in the AML and KYC space, right? 
and we you know we spoke about a lot of them had some really good compelling propositions that are positioned to a certain area of the market and speak specifically which is fantastic and some of them probably lack the, the value capture the value creation is in the product but the value capture of how you commercialize it is often the thing that lets those businesses down in the market which we mentioned um, so so i think there should be some consolidation in the market based on funding right if we go through an extended uh, period of, um, of of economic downturn then clearly there will be less funding available and therefore there will be a consolidation in the early days that you, you were in the market as i was you know there were a, there were a limited number of very large providers and financial stability is important in this environment and certainty is absolutely increased in value in this world over the last three months and um, that's both from an employer and from the people that you do business with so my own view is that there will be a time of, of, of consolidation and that trust to the bigger organizations to answer your question directly absolutely that said there are some really cool smart smaller technology companies that have the agility that is needed to spot trends in this market early jump on those trends and do something about it and act and and make something happen and and the thing that will ultimately get the economies around the world out of the situation it's in over the next few years will be those companies that spot those opportunities and create and capture value you know fast who will be the next amazons and the the group of companies we saw 10 or 12 years ago so that's not just necessarily on size because there's a few really really great um small reg tech businesses that i hugely respect but they generally have a common theme right they have great value creation in the product and services they offer that's truly different not I want to get into a growing market they do something really uniquely different and they can articulate that and capture that difference and value in the market and they're often run like large businesses with, with profitability in mind so that they have true investor value creation rather than let me just look at this idea grab a load of funding try and get some revenue momentum and see where this takes me you know that that game is up a little bit now right um that's my own personal view. What about you? It seems to me that there's going to be opportunities from this move towards people working from home uh, and the answer in many ways to um, some of the challenges that we're going to face getting back to work has already been shown to be and will continue to be technology and reg tech's going to play a part in that. So that's going to throw up opportunities. Um, I think instinctively, the people best placed to take advantage of a changing environment are normally the, the sort of smaller, more nimble players. But at the same time, instinctively, I can see if I was looking to um, make a big change at the moment, now more than ever, I may, might take solace in working with a brand that is established and is a proven entity just because of it's I, I imagine in this environment it's more challenging to to validate what you're you're being shown right it's it's just a bit more tricky so i think i, I essentially i agree with you um and before we started recording you you made a good point as well um about when it comes to employers and hiring and there might there may be being more of a draw towards businesses that can 
uh, point towards being more resilient in this kind of environment and that that might benefit some of the larger companies for example like relics group i would imagine um, yeah you know i think that's a really good point you know that might be a trend that we see yeah and of course the, it, with more remote working um probably a widening of talent pool based on location where certain people and organizations would want somebody in the same office i think that that's a trend that's moving away now and therefore talent pools could be more open and flexible which is which is also positive yeah and, and, and that throws up lots of questions at the same time doesn't it because i think that could be an amazing thing but at, at, at the same time what does that mean for san francisco for london and these communities kind of becoming innovation centers if you like um that kind of grown up in it yeah. organically what what happens to that is the advantage lost because people are working remotely more um does it exist in another way um is it is this maybe just a short-term thing and and we'll revert back to something not unlike what was the case in december 2019 in a year's time i don't know it's that and i think people's appetite to that is fairly uh, broadly spread in all honesty so we've done a recent survey um, in our organization around returning to work and the levels of desire and anxiety around that and weirdly across a, a, a an employee base in in rba of north of nine thousand people it's very evenly distributed there are a lot of people that are actually very very anxious to go back to the office and don't want to go back to the office right now versus some that are absolutely dying to get back and and i think that that's down to personal circumstances right we've got um, some offices are easier to get to you can drive to you don't have to stand on crowded trains and tubes and those sorts of things so yeah and and then um, we have individuals that are homeschooling and caring for vulnerable adults and we have other individuals that are away for their families in health shares and working from home is quite tough and therefore if they could get to an office safely that would be a better option for them based on how they live their life um, but I think people's behaviors and preferences and values are clearly going to change and when you look at houses is there a home working space particularly without a vaccine because you don't know when any, any lockdown can happen again um, but the positive thing is people's appetite has changed people know that they in many businesses particularly information and technology and data right we, we could operate the same as we were operating. In fact, our teams are absolutely doing their best work right now that they've ever done in some of the toughest of circumstances. And of course, we miss those open team meetings and looking people in the eyes and even just a simple thing like a handshake. But there are other things around the flexible working day because, you know, like yourself, Tom, you know, you split um, your working day in the current um, lockdown environment between you and your partner and, and do the same here and, and you've got that flexibility to to do your job in addition to the other responsibilities you have in your life and that is a, a very very positive thing for everybody so I hope that there are some good strong healthy habits that come from this I think you're right about that um, my instinct is that things will return to how they were much more than some people realize uh, but that some of these changes will stick um, and the uh, degree to which homeworking is uh, accepted and in some cases even encouraged is likely to be one of them.
Yeah. And it would be interesting to see what lessons we learned from this, right? If we truly went back to normal, that could be a real waste based on what we've just been through. And um, I hope that from an individual and societal perspective, we can take some of those lessons and make things better based on the way we've been forced to do it over a few months rather than just return exactly back to how we were before. There's, there's a lot of positive things we can get from that. Do you have any advice for a frontline salesperson at the moment? You know, customers will remember now how you make them feel for a long, long time. And being able to assist and help and, um, and be there for them and support them in changing their new objectives is unbelievably powerful. And that would be my advice to most salespeople at the moment is is be there for your customers and make sure you're adding value now more than ever. Because there's plenty of opportunity. And if you're ever going to uncover value and customer problems and all of the things that salespeople look for in their curiosity, now is the easiest time to do it. I have one last question for you, Dean. If you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to an 18-year-old Dean Curtis, what would it be? Can I have two? They're quite easy, but there's two oh, very prominent ones, actually. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, one would be more be more confident in myself. Right. And the other would be um, make more mistakes, which sounds pretty counterintuitive. But as a as a young person and an ambitious person that that wanted the best from my career. Um, you spend a lot of time second guessing yourself. And there's, you know, the thing that I'm probably learning is that level of authenticity and being able to trust yourself and being confident in who you are and, and taking those core aspects of what makes you successful as a person and do more of them rather than try and change yourself to an environment to, to fit in, I think is, is fundamentally key. And if I'm honest, I didn't find that easy in my younger life. Yeah. Um, and the other is, is, is around making more mistakes. I, I was frightened to make mistakes. Um, and despite uh, you know, that background in, in sport, um, you would never fulfill your potential unless you step outside of your comfort zone. You know, growth and personal growth happens when you are uncomfortable all of the time. And by living life not wanting to make mistakes, you live more in a comfortable zone. Yeah. And... I wish I'd have made more mistakes and I hope I make more because if I don't make any, I've been so far in my comfort zone that I haven't come close to fulfilling my true potential. So they would be my two more confidence in self. Yeah. Um, however I come across, I don't, I don't think I had as much or have as much as, as some people feel and, um, and more mistakes. Very nice. Perfect note to end on. Thank you very much, Dean Curtis. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Cheers. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for this episode of the RegTech Legends podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dean's story. I'm certainly very grateful to him for sharing it with us. Next time, we're going to be doing something slightly different. So uh, thanks to the hard work and input from uh, some friends of RegTech Legends, 
we're going to be doing a deep dive on the history and future of sanctions and PEP screening. Um, so one not to be missed. See you next time. Take care. Thank you.